0: Good morning. pretty cool to preach preach in this church for the first time. So, let's go. Let's, go. let's do it. Well, I was wondering what was going to happen with Cole over here. Like a like a, he he just like walked over here in the middle of that song with a bag of What are those? Are they sour sour worms? Sour Patch Kids. I was I was hoping that Joseph was going to be like the, a teacher and be like, Cole. If you bring something into class, you need to share with the whole church. <laughs> know, <laughs> Did he give you some Dirk? No. Oh, well, didn't you didn't accept. Okay. Well, that's okay. Anyway, well, it's good to see all of you. Welcome to 2023. Right? We 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 made it through 2022. Uh, so. As Cole mentioned, this morning we're starting a series on the spiritual disciplines. Uh, and if, if that sounds like a really churchy word, you're not familiar with it, when we say spiritual disciplines, what we're talking about is basically, we want to build spiritual muscles in this church. And the spiritual disciplines are like doing a spiritual workout, like working out our spirituality and basically growing spiritual muscles Paul exhorts the church throughout the epistles to discipline themselves in godliness. No, I don't want one. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I love being interrupted in that way. Thank you. (laughs) Paul tells us to discipline ourselves in godliness, not the eating of sour worms. And as a church, we've, we've as Cole mentioned, we have five ways in which we do that. Five basically spiritual workouts that we do as a church to build ourselves up in the faith. We practice the intake of scripture, the practice of solitude in praying, the practice of Sabbathing and resting in Jesus, of self-denial and fasting, and, and also in the practice of the seasons, orienting our calendars around the spiritual practices. And today, what we're going to be doing What we're going to be doing is not necessarily starting just talking about those spiritual disciplines individually, but we're going to get down to the foundation, down to the the basement layer of the spiritual disciplines and see what's at the bottom of them. And I believe that if we can get to the bottom of those, well, our experience in practicing the disciplines will, I believe, be filled with joy because sometimes it's difficult. A lot of times it's difficult. And so I want to do that with you this morning. So, uh, in 2016, there was a newspaper article that came out that sent little ripples and waves through the uh, health and wellness uh, movement in America. They published a study showing that 70% of gym memberships have no one showing up to the gym, which is crazy, right? Right? 70% 70% of people who have a gym membership never show up. Now, I'm not interested in painting all gyms as the same, and I'm sure the one you go to is better than this, so I'm not here to. And, you know, being a bigger guy that is out of shape, I, you know, I don't have an agenda here to shut down the health and wellness industry. <laughs> but this struck me. of gym memberships are basically just donations. We have better odds going to Vegas playing blackjack at 40% of a chance of winning than going to a gym and getting in shape. Something's up with it. Well, it's just got me thinking. And I'm, like I said, I'm not trying to discourage anyone from getting gym memberships. I need one, right? But there's a point here, really a question. What is going on that so many people are buying memberships but not showing up? And I think the answer is simple. Change is hard. Change is really freaking hard. It's really hard. And apparently, change is somewhat rare. And we all know this, whether it's gym memberships, a diet, whether it's reading through the Bible in the year. How many of you made it through the 2022 reading through the Bible in a year plan? I see a couple hands. Good for you guys you're rare. A lot of us started and didn't make it. Our prayer life is our prayer life. Did we pray as much as we intended to in 2022? New Year's resolutions are like this. We make commitments. We want to make changes. We want to make improvements, but we end up finding ourselves in the 70% because change is hard. How do we, and and so the question that keeps coming to my mind as I think about this, as I think about the disciplines, is how do we escape the black cloud of the 70%? And is it even possible? Or is it just based on like personality type, those who are naturally disciplined? Is there really any hope for change? Or to put it another way, is practicing the disciplines just another way to feel like a failure? Is it just another way to realize I didn't stick it out? What does that say about me as a person? Well, I have good news for you this morning. I have good news. God, I believe, wants to fill you with hope this morning. He wants you to know that your efforts to grow as a Christian are not in vain. He wants you to know that you already are what you aim to be in Jesus. You already are what you aim to be in Jesus. That change has already occurred and you already are what you aim to be in Jesus. Look at your neighbor and tell them, you already are what you aim to be in Jesus. Change is not just possible for a Christian. It is absolutely certain. And I want us to see that in the text that we're going to be looking at together this morning. So stand with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, down to chapter 6, verse 1. Paul, writing here, says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then. We appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. You could be seated. It's the word of the Lord. It is good and it is true. I think everybody loves a good locker room speech. Everyone loves, you know, you I, you go to YouTube, you could type in locker room speech, and you get these uh, scenes in the locker room, especially in football locker rooms, where it gets loud and rowdy, and you got a coach there yelling, and you got you got the inspirational music behind you. We all love inspiration like this. But I want you to know, I want want to make clear here that Paul does not give us a locker room speech here. It is not just like a motivational you can do it speech. It is not a believe in yourself kind of passage. It is also not a new law that you're just going to struggle to keep. It's not a get it together, figure it out, people. This passage is about two things. It's telling us who Jesus is and what a difference he makes in your life. What change he brings into your life. You see the difference between a locker room speech and this passage is that the focus is not so much on what you need to do, but on what Christ has done and what he's doing in you. Because he wants you to know you already are what you aim to be. In Jesus. So Paul starts here by helping us in verse 16 to reorient our thinking about ourselves. He wants us to know who we are because you and I, if you're like me, I feel like a failure. I feel like I'm reminded of the many things I intend to do but don't. But Paul wants us to reorient our thinking about ourselves and to reorient our thinking about one another in the church. He wants to speak to you about your identity. Who are you? What are you? And he says there in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We're not to understand ourselves. We're not to know ourselves or one another as just average, basic humans. We're not average, basic people. Paul is saying. We don't regard one another as the normal person in the world. We're not the 70% in other words. We're not, we are something different. And I'm wondering, in this question, I I felt this. Do I really believe that I'm not just the average Joe? Do I really believe that I am not just the the normal 70%? And Paul here to, to to help us with this, he uses Jesus as an example to help us think through this. He uses Jesus there. In verse 16 he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, he was just the son of Mary, a carpenter who lived, who came from Nazareth. Just a, He appeared in many ways to just be a regular dude who also happened to really like the Bible. But when he dies for sin and raises from the dead, we realize, oh, he's not just a regular guy. He is not just a dude from Nazareth, he's the Lord, he's the Christ, he's God, and, do him, and he is due worship. And so we don't just regard him as a regular person. Paul is saying, in a similar but different way, we should not be regarding one another as just regular people. We shouldn't regard ourselves as a regular person. And in verse 17, he tells us how we should regard ourselves, and how we should regard one another. He says in verse 17, therefore... If you are in Christ, you're what? A new creation. You're something different. You aren't a normal average Joe. You aren't just a regular person. You aren't the 70%. That's not you. You you have a different identity. We're a new creation. Through the resurrection of Jesus, his identity as God in the flesh was put on full display. And our union to Christ by faith allows us to share in the miracle of his resurrection, which is being changed into a new creature. His resurrection brings us the ability to be a new creature, experiencing the work of new creation in our hearts. And, you know, that can just sound like a bunch of religious nonsense, if you leave it there. You know, we put this, we put verse 17 on coffee cups we, we scribe it on our walls, you know. We memorize it and, and we, it becomes a slogan. Oh, we're new creatures in Christ. But what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean? Because and, and, I think if we get, get to the bottom of this, it will really help us in particular as we think about the disciplines. Genesis 1 and 2 are amazing chapters in the Bible. God creates the whole world. He declares it good. He creates Adam and Eve. He declares them very good. And so we get this picture of a pure, sinless, and really a, a, a kind of utopia in Genesis 1 and 2. It's, it's, it's flourishing and happiness and joy. It's what we all would want. It's what we all long for. They're in loving relationship with one another. And they're in loving relationship with God. And God walks with them in the cool of the day. It's, it's beautiful. It's what everyone wants. Creation was good and was all at peace and joy. But then when we come to chapter 3 in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve fail. They sin, and as they sin, God banishes them from the garden. He banishes them from his presence, and all the flourishing goes away. Sin and death reign. And, at, and at the question at the bottom of every book when you get when you go through the Old Testament from Genesis 3 on is... Is there any hope that any of this is going to change? Is there any hope that we could get back to Genesis 1 and 2? Is there any hope that Genesis 3 could be undone? Is it possible to get flourishing life and peace and joy back? Or are we just destined to fail? And into that desperation, into that question comes Jesus. Paul makes explicit reference to this earlier in our passage in verse 14, where he says, who for our sake or their sake, Christ died and was raised from the dead. He makes explicit reference to Jesus being the second Adam in Romans 5. That that Christ was just another Adam, coming to do what Adam couldn't do, living the perfect life. Pleasing God, living in, in, in peace with God and with his people. He did what Adam couldn't do and then he paid for our sin. Dying and raising from the dead. You see, in Christ, God is redoing Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus is the reimagining, the redoing, the new creation of Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus was the new Adam and he did not sin, and instead brings life and flourishing. And here's my thought. Here's my struggle with this. Okay, God's bringing new creation in Jesus. Flourishing, peace, and joy. That's great. But my life doesn't look like it in a lot of ways. I struggle nonetheless. And if I'm honest, I'm just waiting for Genesis 3 to come again. Just waiting for the shoe to drop, for Genesis 3 to come again, be banished from God's presence, and be out of luck. That's, that, that's the struggle that I have. So what Paul does here then is he wants to help us. He, he, he wants to help us to see that if you fail to read your Bible every year, that Genesis 3 is not coming knocking at your door. He wants you to understand that you are a new creature. And it's not just Genesis 1 and 2 over again. It's an entirely new creation. And so I, Paul goes on, and we do not have time to unpack everything that's here. But Paul goes on and he, I, I'm just going to pull out three things quickly. Three things that Paul uses to describe to us what being a new creation means. What it is and how it works. He's going to show us that as new creatures, we're reconciled, that we're righteous, and that we're fruitful. So those are the three things he's going to show us here. First, he shows us that we're reconciled. In verses 18 to 20, he shows us that we are reconciled to God. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. We're reconciled. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That he made us reconciled people. You are not a failure. You are reconciled to God. God is not angry at you and your job is not to make him happy with you. You are reconciled with him through the work of Christ. Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, made peace between us and God. He reconciled what was broken in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is the story of how our relationship with God went bad. And in Jesus... Him stepping in, he makes it right. In Christ, you are reconciled to God. Being a new creature means that you are perfectly reconciled with God. You don't need to try to fix your relationship with God. Jesus did. You don't need to try to maintain your relationship with God. Jesus did, and he does. You don't need to improve your relationship with God. Because it's already perfect in Christ. You already are what you aim to be in Jesus. You cannot read enough of the Bible to make God more happy with you than he currently is. You cannot pray more to God to make him more happy with you than he already is in Jesus. In other words, you are already what you want to be with God in Jesus. You're reconciled. So when you pr- fail to pray as you should or read your Bible as you should, practice the disciplines as you should, do you need to be reconciled with God? Do you need to you know, go to him and try to figure out a way to make peace with him? The answer is no. Because Jesus already has for you. In Jesus, you are permanently, perfectly, and eternally at peace with God. He did it. It's done. You don't have to worry about it. You can rest in him. In fact, it's not just something that's done. It's your identity. It's who you are. It defines you as a being. You are a new creature in a far better place than even Adam and Eve were. You see, Adam and Eve were at peace with God in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. The problem was was they were capable of being at odds with God and they ended up being at odds with God in Genesis 3. But what Jesus does (laughs) <laughs> he gives us a far better situation. He comes in and he reconciles with God and us with God in a way that makes that reconciliation permanent. We cannot be unreconciled with God. Because our reconciliation is not based upon us or our behavior or our practice of the disciplines, our reconciliation is rooted in the work of Jesus, which gives us a very secure foundation. Which means that when you try to go practice the disciplines, you can do so without fear. God is not going to be upset with you if you don't do what you think you need to do with the disciplines. You are rooted, you are a reconciled person as a new creature. You don't have to fear Genesis 3 happening to you again. Second, you're not only reconciled, but you're righteous, verse 21. You're not only reconciled, but in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, Christ, to be sin, your sin and my sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. You are righteous. You're not just reconciled. God, it's not just that God, you're at peace with God. You are righteous before him and that's your very identity. You are a righteous person. You are not the 70%. You are righteous before him. So many of us think that if we read more of the Bible, that that will make us more righteous. You cannot be more righteous than what Jesus has made you. If we pray more, we'll be more righteous. If we practice more fasting, that'll make us more righteous. No. You are righteous in Christ. You cannot add to it, and you certainly cannot detract from it. You are already righteous in Jesus. Change has already come. The question is not, is change possible the question, the reality is change has already happened it's already happened you are the old has gone the new has come you are righteous you have the very righteousness of god the righteousness of jesus this is why this is why we just quoted in in our uh, confession that we have the Jesus's robe of righteousness we wear his righteousness wear his righteousness Adam and Eve were righteous and they were without sin in the garden. But it was their own righteousness, which means that it could be lost and it meant that it could be corrupted. Note here, we are given God's righteousness. That's what he says in verse 21, that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't have our own righteousness. We have God's righteousness. So what that means is you can't mess it up. The change has happened, and it's permanent, it's effective, and it's forever. You cannot fail. You are already righteous. You are already what you aim to be in Jesus. Look at your neighbor and remind them that. You are already what you aim to be in Jesus. Many of you are tired of failing because you've tried discipline and you've stopped. You've tried to read the Bible and then stopped. You've tried to pray and then quit. You tried to stop a particular sin and you failed. You've tried to improve your marriage but failed. You've tried to find joy in Jesus and just feel stuck. Know this, you already possess every good thing you ha- in Jesus. You're reconciled, you're righteous, you're already changed. You're guaranteed to succeed. You're not your failure. Your failures do not define you. The righteousness of Jesus does. You're not your mistakes or sins. You're righteous in Jesus today, right now. And in him you are everything, once you want, you are everything God wants you to be already. This means that when you strive to grow, you strive to be disciplined, you can't fail. And that's the gospel. That is the gospel. The gospel is not just Jesus died for your sin and rose from the dead so that you don't have to go to hell. It's true. But that's not all. It's also that you have the righteousness of God and you are, you're not just guaranteed future change. You're changed. And that change is working itself out in your life right now. He does not demand you to be righteous as if your efforts are what will get the job done. He did it for you, and all we all, what we get to do as Christians is live into that reality. You, uh, I don't know how many of you have had friends like uh, like I. I think we've all seen this, and maybe I've been this person. But you have a friend who um, you like, you love them, you appreciate them, and that friend is not convinced. And so they try to convince you to be their friend when you're already their friend and they kind of act in exaggerated ways. They're just kind of like, what are you doing? I, I already like you. You don't need to impress me. I think God might feel that way about some of us sometimes, especially with the disciplines. We don't need to get, do anything to get him to like us. We're already righteous. He already loves us. We're already reconciled. Our practice of the disciplines is not to get his attention positive attention we already have it we already have it it's already there and much more it means that being being righteous now listen to this for some of us this is a real struggle being righteous is the authentic version of us it's the authentic version of us i've heard some people say well i would pray more but that's just not me I mean, I would, I would be a fake version of myself, like I'm putting on spirituality. No, the authentic version of you is a righteous person who prays. The authentic version of you is the person who loves the, God of, the word of God and stays in it. The authentic version of you is the person who worships passionately. And, and, and God is inviting you into that without fear because you, don't, you can't fail. And, and it is your future. That's who you are. That's who you are and what you'll be. Or people will think, well, I feel like a failure because I have really failed. And so it would just be inauthentic for me to come in and pretend like I'm not not a failure. Well, again, your failure doesn't define you. The righteousness of Christ does. So the authentic you comes in despite your failure and worships Jesus and prays and reads the Bible You don't practice the disciplines to get better or to be a reflection of who you are, the old self. We do it as a reflection of who we really are in Jesus, which is reconciled and righteous people. You see, Genesis 3 is not coming again. Because in Jesus, you're righteous and will be perfectly forever. Adam and Eve had the capability of being unrighteous. You do not. In Christ... You are righteous. End of story. It is who you are. You are already what you aim to be in Jesus. The last thing then we see here is that we are fruitful. In chapter 6 and verse 1 he says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. In light of what Paul has just said, he tells the church to act. To work together With God. He's suggesting that we work with God. So what he's he's envisioning here. Is that our identity. Our identity in Jesus. As reconciled and righteous people. Should produce activity. Should produce effort. Should produce effort like. Living out the disciplines. Like fighting against sin. Like striving to uh, make our marriages better. Whatever it may be. Because being a new creature does not produce lazy people. It just doesn't, it doesn't produce people who sit back and say, well, I'm reconciled and righteous, there's nothing for me to do. It produces people who then are free and happy to engage the work that God has called us to do. Because we're not trying to earn anything, but because we can joyfully and freely live into who we already are in Jesus. Freedom yields work. And you all know that freedom yields work. You all know this. Because, well, my wife and I uh, go on vacations from time to time, freed from the restraints of, of our labor during the week, freed from the restraints of normal life having to clean the house, we got a hotel room and the maid can do it. Freed from having to make our own meals, the restaurant can do it. Freed from keeping an agenda, we get to set our own agenda It's amazing. And then what happens when you get home from vacation after all that freedom? I need a vacation for my vacation. Don't you all feel that way? I need a couple days to recover from the work of vacationing before I go back to work. It's a real thing because freedom makes you want to go out and do things with your freedom, it breeds work. And that's what Paul's envisioning here. The freedom you have as reconciled and righteous people is going to make you want to do things because now you're not inhibited. Now I'm not inhibited with, I can't fail in reading the Bible. I'm not just going to read it through once. I'm going to read it through three times this year. That's the idea that Paul has in mind here. I got ahead of myself. This is the kind of thing that happens in the Christian life. When Jesus makes you a new creature, you don't use that new identity to bow out of life and stare at a screen all day. It leads to work, to good work. In context here, it leads to the ministry of reconciliation. Bringing new creation to the world around us and to others around us. But for our purposes today, it means working out the disciplines. It means getting after it in prayer and Bible reading, fasting, the seasons, and resting in Jesus' accomplishment for us. Note here, he says that working together with him, our work won't be in vain. Look at that in verse verse 1. To not receive the grace of God in vain. Meaning that your efforts are going to be worth all the work. You're not wasting your time. That's really good news because that that means that if you intend to read through the Bible this year and you make it to February, that there's good fruit in that. And God is working through it and He's using it, and it's not a waste of your time. Well, I didn't make it through. I'm a failure. No, you're righteous and your work is fruitful. God is going to use it to bless you and serve you. So I don't know if you're intending to read through the Bible in the year, through the year, this year, but if you do, take that word of hope. Don't fear failure, jump in. God will make your work fruitful. Your work is already fruitful. You are a fruitful person in Jesus. It is part of your identity. It's part of the reality of being a new creation. Paul says this another way a couple chapters earlier in chapter 3 and verse 18. It might be up on the screen if if it's in the computer still back there. Uh, He says this. He says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. That as Christians, we look at who we are in Jesus and God takes our little meager efforts from one glory to another and we grow. And so we might not get through the Bible in a year this year. That's just one glory. There's so many more to come. God is is working through you to make sure that you are fruitful. You will realize and become the righteousness that you already are in Jesus. It's coming. It's certain. You cannot fail with it. You don't make progress becoming... You don't make more progress becoming more righteous. You don't make progress becoming more reconciled with him. You make progress living into your true self as a person who was already righteous. You live into the reality of who you are as a changed person a righteous and fruitful person who's deeply loved by God. So as you can see here, Paul doesn't just give us a... a, I hope it's not perceived as just a motivational speech. He wants to reorient your vision of who you are and how that works out in your life. It's not just a TED talk. He helps us to see our true identity in Jesus and to live out of it. In 2007, Georgia Tech... They were an underdog football team at the time. Not very good. They didn't have a team that on paper looked the best. And they went to go play Notre Dame. They were a team, uh, Georgia Tech was a team just riddled with injury and illness. And before they went into that game, the 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 team chaplain, he got up and gave a speech. He grabbed a big hammer and if you watch this on YouTube, they got like real inspirational music behind it and he's standing there with this big sledgehammer and he's talking to them and he goes, we're going to fight until we can't fight no more. We're going to lie down and we're going to bleed a while. Then we're going to get up and we're going to fight some more and the team just and they go crazy and they go out and they win the game, right? It's great. So it's it's a great locker room speech. It's exciting. It's motivating. Run through a wall with a football helmet like it's great, but it's not gospel. It's not gospel. Here's how Paul would say it to us: We're going to fight until we can't fight no more. But Jesus was already beat down for us. He bled to death. Then he got up from the dead, and he fought to give us the victory that he already won. You've already won. So now just go out and play like it. Just go out and play like it. Because it's done. God wants you to know you already are what you aim to be in Jesus. So practice the disciplines with the freedom and the joy that that truth gives you. Let's pray and ask him for help to do that. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Good night. Without it, A world of Genesis 3's would just be looming over our heads. I just pray, Lord, that this year, as we think about the disciplines, as we strive to live for you, that 2023 would just be a year of even greater glory than we could imagine as we behold your face together. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.